So this is Lauren Fiorelli, and I'm here at the Park Slope branch of the Brooklyn Public Library mm -hmm. on February 20th, 2016, with Tom Miscal. Mm -hmm. um, so Tom, uh, just tell me, so you, you were born here, so where, right. where, where, where were you born? Uh, 13th Street and 6th Avenue. 13th Street and 6th Avenue, and what was that like? That, that uh, It was very typical lower middle class area, mostly Catholic, mostly Italian, uh, and uh, Irish, mostly Irish, basically like that. Uh, in fact, I grew up not knowing that my parents had a brogue. That's how Irish it was. Right, you were so surrounded by the accent. That right, I remember getting, uh, when I started college, getting to meet a new group of friends, and one called my house up, and got uh, the tongue. Who's the maid? I couldn't understand the word you talking about. Well, my mother had a brogue. I never knew that. Yeah. And he couldn't understand it. Because brogue is a uh, word for shoe. So basically, the English would say they talk like they have a shoe in their mouth, a brogue. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. That's so interesting. Uh, so did your parents come from Ireland? Right. They both, uh, my, my mother from Mayo, my father from Galway. Straight to Brooklyn. Right, straight to Brooklyn. Uh, ended up on Union Street and basically met for the first time. And... Uh, so they met in Brooklyn? I met in Brooklyn. Okay. Do you have any siblings? Or? I have two sisters. And so what was it like growing up on your block with your sisters? And uh, I think the first was before a lot of cars. So basically the boys played stickball most of the day and foot, football in the street during the winter. And the girls played with their dolls, the little games on the stoops and all that. And that was basically, you know, and, and the big thing during the summer uh, the mother would get, give you a dollar to go out to steeplechase because you can get a day for the whole day for a dollar. You get a little round thing, and 10 rides and all that. How long did it take you to get to steeplechase from where you were? Steeplechase, at that point, the subway had finally gotten through because it was supposed to be finished to go to Coney Island by the end of the 1930s. Right. Because of the war, it didn't get through to the beginning of the 1950s. But then we just go on the, what was called the D train then and just take it right out to maybe not even a half hour out to Coney Island Avenue. How often would you do that? Well, as a teenager, we'd go to the beach all the time. Bay 14, all of us would be, all the teenagers would meet, because we were the beginning of the baby boomers. So all of a sudden, kids were popping up all over the place. Yeah. And uh, so we were all teenagers. We hit music at the same time, and you know, we were time of Presley and all that. This is, this is the big thing. All of a sudden, the first time, uh, the younger people were, were being listened to. We're not listened to. <laughs> we kept on talking. Making yourself right, heard. Right. So, so as a teenager, you would go out to Coney Island a lot, though, sort of. Well, that'd be for the summer, you know, like before we get jobs and all that. We're 14 or 15, you know, like that. Yeah. We're just in high school and all So, did you get a job as a teenager? Actually, yeah, yeah. Uh, my sister had worked at Merrill Lynch, and I was going to get a part time job over there on the weekends. I had gone up. Most of the people would, around here would go to uh, manual training, it was a local high school. And at that point, you didn't get a chance to go anyplace else. You had to go to your neighborhood school. Uh, and I went to a Catholic school up in Manhattan, a place called Powell Memorial Academy, that no longer exists. And uh, that was my, my introduction to, into the world, because leaving Brooklyn every day by train. Whoa. What was it like? Well, you know, wow. You know, all of a sudden, it was a different world, and we ended up uh, where I went to school was like, 61st Street and Amsterdam Avenue. And to get there, we got off the train at uh, 
Columbus, and right by the world, the Colosseum, it's a big trade show where it no longer exists either. And you walk by an area which is still left over from the 40s. Which area? Uh, basically uh, 61st Street and all that. Oh, on, on the east side? Yeah, right. No, with the west side. The west, oh, side. The west, west side. side was more oh, important answer. than the east yes, side. Yes, okay, sorry. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so, so, you studied, so you were going to school in Manhattan right. and taking the train every day. Right. Uh, were you taking the train alone? Like. No, all of a sudden, along the way, we would meet four or five people, which basically stayed together for a whole time there. And we'd go home together, you know, and so basically the guys from, most of the people were from Manhattan uh, or Brooklyn, a couple from Queens. And uh, basically that would be it. So basically we, we knew a lot of people from the different areas, which were far, foreign areas. And it's actually, people say, did you know somebody from Carroll Street or something like that? Well, I live on 8th Street. And you didn't travel that far away. Like stickball, you play 7th Street, you play 9th Street. But you weren't traveling a lot because the mothers also liked to be around when they called you for dinner. Yeah. So, so you, you pretty much stuck to the area, except when you get to high school. Then you explore more? You explain more and then you go, go to, you know, uh, after school you go to the local place for a soda or something like that. And that used to be a few blocks away, but you were older, you can go that. You were, four, you were a teenager. Sick teenagers, you know. <laughs> what other mischief did you get up to as a teenager? Not really. We didn't. The big thing was uh, watch yourself or you'll get a JD card. Which JD card was something where you did something wrong, the cops would give you a card oh. saying, you know, juvenile delinquent. JD card. But did you, did, was there any other punishment besides them giving you the card? No, nobody, nobody, we didn't know anybody got it. I think it was a threat get a JD card, it'll be on your permanent record, which they didn't tell you what the permanent record was. <laughs> like the nun in the school said, it'll be on your record. We thought the nun was keeping a record of us. We didn't know. <laughs> so. Uh, and what decade was this, uh, your teenage years? What, what, year? what, what, what years? What years? Yeah, let's just talk about uh, uh, 57 to, this, to 61, 62. Okay. Did you ever get the JD card? No, I, I really don't know anybody who did. But we knew it was part of the JD card. Were you scared of it or did you make well, fun of it? We didn't know what, we didn't make fun of You didn't make fun in those days because you weren't too sure what to what. You were just learning things. And they, you weren't learning from other older people because we were the baby boomers. There weren't a lot of older people. And the parents were just brand new to this whole thing. And the, the police would say, you're going to get a JD card. Don't do that, you know. Our big thing is basically uh, getting people off the block who had cars so we can play a game of stickball, which was easier then. The area now is called No Park Slope. There's no parking in Park Slope at all. In those days, we'd say, Mr., can you move your car? You're on third base. Sure, boy. Move your car. You know? oh, and so that was the big things in life, you know? Yeah, it was like taking this time to ask people right. to move their car so you could play a game. Right. <laughs> and uh, that, that lasted for quite a few years. So did you have like a core set of like neighborhood friends? Oh yeah, basically we all grew up, it was like, there were, there were children all over the place. Uh, basically all the vets came in and they didn't waste any time. They started the family and the kids just, just kept on coming. So we would have different levels. Some people were 13 and 12, the next group was 10. And so you had, always had a farm team for the stickball games till the boys discovered girls and they left the stickball team. <laughs> that was when you graduated out. I think first you started, all of a sudden the guy started 
washing his hair and changing his clothes every day because Susie was watching him, you know. And we didn't know, you know, yep, yep, what's him, you know. So we would take over the stick boat till we learned to wash our hair and change around. So we learned the truth of life. Yeah. You know? And that was basically, yeah, and things didn't really start changing until, I guess, the late 60s, where a lot of us started getting to be 18, 19, 20, 21, and we started, uh, learning more things, which kids didn't learn things until they were 30, I guess. As the young kids, like, basically children weren't really supposed to be into politics, knowing things and all that. And all of a sudden we were finding more things. Also, television came along. Uh, You weren't into cable yet, uh, but the TV was showing Huntley and Brinkley, which was a news team at that time, would tell you what was happening up to the, almost up to the minute. And so you knew what was happening throughout the whole country. California was discovered because in the 40s, California was out there. Yeah, my Uncle Joe went to California to get a new start. Everybody went to California to get a new start. It seemed like a mythical place. Yeah, right. And then with the guys coming back from the war, they, they came through California a lot. And they recognized there was a place. And all of a sudden, they started the, uh, like Route 66, you've heard of that. So basically, Eisenhower started uh, roadways through the whole country and trucks started opening it up so things that were like Kansas was something for the Wizard of Oz. All of a sudden it was attainable. Buses went there and things like that. And Sears catalog was all over the place. And all of a sudden TV and Disneyland opened up. And we were all there watching Walt Disney opening his park. On the TV. On the TV. Ronald Reagan was a, a character actor then and he was the one who was master ceremonies for it, you know? And we had no idea who he was going to be. And uh, it was sort of like that that was an opening of something. And Davy Crockett was there. And we, we had gone crazy with Davy Crockett because he was the man with a coonskin cap. And everybody had a coonskin cap. Did you have one? No, we were, we were in a poor neighborhood. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But uh, middle class America had it. And uh, we all knew the same people and all that. Same things. We watched the Ed Sullivan shows. We, uh, Steve Allen, things like that, you know. And then we, then all of a sudden, a, a teenager discovered a guy on Channel Seven with an afternoon dance group. And you know, wow, that's great, you know. He to tell me to belong to the teenagers at the time like that. So Dick Clark was there, and we he interview us, us teenagers. So we sort of nobody knew what we were doing. Three thirty in the afternoon. We were watching Dick Clock, <laughs> and that was something different. Yeah. So we started creating our own own lifestyle. And so, did you did you feel like the class divide that you were talking about like, growing up? Like, did you the sort of line you were talking about of Third Avenue was? Were you aware? Not of that? really. I think was more aware as I got older and I look back. I saw saw in history and I I became a history major and uh, I was looking at it. Said this is interesting, and seeing and finding out what was happening. As I said, we, we didn't ever went beyond 8th Street, 9th Street, 10th Street. As you get old, you start looking, and as you get old, you start meeting more people. And all of a sudden, I started meeting people in that other class, the, the U. Kerry class, who was a congressman at the time. And that was, that was the people who attached to him, so that was the upper class. So I got into that class, and uh, not even knowing it. And uh, she's in college, she must be in the upper class. Right? So that's, that was, uh, that was, uh, we got to meet them and, 
and along the way I got to know more and more of them and I started growing up with them. So that was how I got that, that, that boy. That's how I, I, I'm looking back and finding out, oh, that's why this is here. Yeah. That's why this is not here. Uh, that's why the store closed. That's why, you know. Yeah, what exactly, like more precisely, what were the things that you sort of realized looking back? Um, uh, basically, I think basically uh, the different groups of people I was getting to know more of, or more of, uh, somebody played tennis. You know, they were out, they were, they were going to the, the confraternity parties and all that, you know. Well, the other side was not. They were just trying to get a job. Gotcha. Uh, they would get a job on the waterfront, any place at all if they could, you know. And so it was two different things. One was going to college, and not everybody went to college in those days. So college, and just try and get, get through high school. At that time also, manual training had turned, even from a good academic school, was also known as a vocational school. So it got kind of rough also, uh, to the point of, there was a baseball player, and you wouldn't know his name, his name is Joe Pepitone, and he was shot. Yeah, so it was sort of a rough, rough, rough school. He was shot at the school? Or yeah, at the, at the school, okay. yeah. So it was like a rough area, it was a rough area. Yeah, and uh, it took in a lot of people from Brooklyn. There were not a lot of those schools. That, like, mother's biggest dream was that you wouldn't be going to manual training. So with the Catholic school system, because you were in a Catholic neighborhood, guys would be going. Uh, to various Catholic schools around Brooklyn and Manhattan. And, uh, did, did your parents work on the waterfront? Did your father work? My father worked uh, in a sugar factory called Sucrest down in Red Hook. And basically it was one of those things where I think everybody who came off the boat from Ireland worked there, you know. So again, the idea of the brogue, I would go and visit my father worked, everybody had a brogue. So I would not know the difference at all. But you didn't pick it up yourself. No, even though I know people who did pick it up, especially in the Bronx area, it's heavy Irish, and they would speak with a slight, a slight wilt in their, their tongue. But we really didn't, but just the woman you were with most of your life spoke like this. In fact, everybody used to meet on Sunday after Mass uh, up in the park. So you'd see all these working class people dressed up in suits and all that, and women in their hats and all that, just talking, showing the children off and just talking. And they must have had a heavy pain, I wouldn't know, because they sounded like my mother and father. In Prospect Park, you mean? Yeah. After Mass? Yeah. In fact, the first, the other place is Windsor Terrace, which is heavy, heavy uh, Irish. Uh, the first time I was in Dublin, I thought I was in Windsor Terrace, because everybody, hi, Sean Bigarden, how are you doing? I was going to see you again. That's grand, isn't it? It's always grand, grand. <laughs> and that would be in the same is this? 16th Street? <laughs> you know, so, so basically, and uh, as it, it was interesting after you meet people, uh, especially I worked on Wall Street and we kept on, and we were an interesting group because when we hit Wall Street after college, they didn't want any part of us really, because it was for the uh, upper echelon to be taking over the sales jobs and trading jobs. And we came in and we started taking it away because third generations are wealthy do not do well. <laughs> Uh, I don't know if it's just the DNA doesn't make it or not. And we started taking over. And eventually we talked to each other about where we came from. And we have to learn a lot of things. I mean, my first job on Wall Street, I went to a restaurant and they had a chamber orchestra. What are they doing? And this old guy came out to say what the wine wine is. What's the old guy doing? 
Yeah. You have that little medallion on there for the wine cellar. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we had no idea. We had to learn all this stuff. Yeah, it was the kind of place you'd never been to before. Well, we wouldn't. We, that wasn't our background. You know, uh, your father worked in the factory. Your mother worked in a hospital somewhere and all that. And you know, yet I had two sisters, and uh, so I got something. I learned to dance from them. You know, but uh, as far as you know, what wine to order? White wine or red wine? You know? We would know nothing of this at all. We were still talking. You know, like you'd have to watch yourself, make sure I talk slow. To well, be understood. Well, from Brooklyn, you run your sentence into one word. I am going to the store. Go to the store. You know, right. you just cut out three vowels, four, four, four letters, but then you slow down and you try and be almost Boston. But then you find out Boston people talk quickly also. So, so you got to watch out where you, where, you, where you talk quickly. So basically, it was a learning process from both the women and the, and the men learning coming out of an area, a very regional area. In fact, it was interesting. It just doesn't do with Brooklyn. After the service, I uh, worked in Merrill Lynch in a thing called sinking funds. And my job was contacting people from out of state. And everybody had an accent, which shortly after that disappeared because of cable, TV, and people going out of their area to college like you're from North Dakota, but you went to Sacramento for college or something like that. People started to lose that accent. So now everybody sounded exactly the same. Right. It wasn't Mrs. O'Meyer from, from Lansing, Michigan, who talked like this. You know. She just talked like everybody else. When did you become, it, was it when you started working on Wall Street that you became aware that you had sort of like a Brooklyn accent? Or, or when you went to school in Manhattan? Uh, no, because again, you had in Manhattan, you had the accent still from everybody else, so you, you were no different. So it was probably, we didn't really know we had a Brooklyn accent until somebody would bring it up. Like, well, you're really from Brooklyn, aren't you? What do you mean? You know? uh, like Marty Markowitz, you know what I mean? Hey, yo. And all of a sudden, you find yourself using little things like that. And, and then traveling to other sections of the country, the first time I traveled to Cincinnati, people talked funny. Uh, they'd say, please, uh, want to pass you something? And they didn't hear you. And, uh, pop, what's a pop? You right, know, all the different uh, words. Different words and all that. So it was an interesting. And eventually all these things come together with the use of, uh, especially the cell phones and all that. Mm. And uh, everything is quicker. But were you, were you embarrassed by your accent when you realized, by, by the Brooklyn accent when you realized that you were sort of... Brooklyn people don't get embarrassed, you know. You <laughs> hey, talk to me, you know. Hey, right, you know. I like that. And uh, and especially you go to different areas, you know, different world. Like uh, you leave here, which is the Irish Catholic area. You're down to Carroll Gardens. You're in an Italian Catholic area, and you all knew how to handle each other in different areas. You, know? yeah. you didn't do any certain things down there, you know. You, know, you just watch yourself, you know. You know, don't steal things, you know. You shouldn't, have. or don't kill anybody on a Sunday, something like that. You said you used to visit your father at the at Red Hook in Red Hook yeah. at work. Yeah. What was what was that area like, or what was it like visiting him there? Very very Irish, Italian. Uh, it was a working waterfront. People don't realize it. Like I'd say about twelve years ago, I met somebody who owns a, uh, a watch repair shop on Fifth Avenue, and he was saying that uh, 
The amount of people coming in to buy jewelry at Christmas time was unbelievable because it was a working area. A lot of longshoremen were there and they were buying gifts for their girlfriend and all that. And they'd be coming up here for that. So there was a wealthy area. Uh, later on in the 60s and 70s, it turned, the dock area just folded up. The uh, longshoremen would not go along with the new ideas of how to ship. They were still, still wanted to do by hand and still doing, you know, just fill up this and put it on, fill the crane, put it on the truck. They kept it the old ways and all that. And they went to uh, uh, New Jersey. Like on the waterfront is sort of a true story. Yeah, so you're saying the technology was changing. Yeah, but they didn't go along with technology, I'm sorry. No, that's okay, keep going. They didn't, uh, the union would not keep up with the technology. Yeah, so, so, so they sort of got so, phased so out. They got phased out and all of a sudden, shipping still increased, but it went to someplace else. So the union workers wouldn't keep up with... The it wasn't the union workers, it was basically the union, the union, itself. The union itself. They just felt we can stay here and not change at all. And the change was coming. Uh, technology was not heard of in the 30s. Outside of the typewriter, the only, everything was sort of changing. Yeah. And all that. And all of a sudden new, new items were coming in. And this was, you know, was coming. Something was happening. Same thing happened with the printing presses. And uh, they refused to, unions refused to go along. And from uh, seven daily papers we had here, it came to only two. They just went out of business. They couldn't take the, the load. Yeah. yeah. Same thing with the trains and all that. In what way with the trains? The trains, you did not need a, a man tending coal. Uh, <laughs> right. <yes. laughs> no, we have a diesel here, you know. And I do remember going out to. Uh, my uncle, who had the two L's, moved out to uh, Long Island and to a place called St. John's, which was a stop at the Smithtown. We had no idea what this, these things were. This is like, you know, way out in the country. Long Island seems so far away. And uh, basically the train would stop and the conductor would get out of the car and put a little ladder down for everybody to get out of the train. And, that, and the train took off. There was no station. Yeah. It was St. John's. <laughs> there was like to, a sign and then yeah, tank challenge and that was it so I went, wait for my uncle to show up with the car <laughs> so did, did your father um, did his job situation change with, with the difficulties with the union and... no uh, they worked for a sugar factory and it's a place that made grandma molasses so he was lucky he was working on that side Okay. and the other side was sugar factory which worked seven days a week and they knock off for a week so they can clean everything because sugar being just eat into everything and all that. And uh, he was able to get this five days a week. So it doesn't really change. And uh, when he passed away, he was like, you know, um, everybody was still working there. Within three years, uh, went out of business because somebody, in the, I guess in the union, had taken all the money. Ooh. So it was one of that period of time. But so did you get the sense that um, like families around you were, were losing jobs because of these changes with the, with the trains and the... Uh, not really. I think uh, people who were out of work will always be out of work, like it was one of those things. And a lot of people had gotten jobs at the Brooklyn Union Gas, uh, Telephone Company, uh, Transit Authority and all that. And uh, so they always knew... Uh, like I used to work every Christmas in the post office, especially a college kid, it was great. You know? And that's where a lot of, a lot of veterans got their, take, took their job and 
in there and they wait for retirement and all that. In fact, it was so funny, a lot of people in the Transit Authority uh, retired early. They could, because I think it was based on the union contract. The last five years uh, of your working counted what you were retired at. So everybody grabbed as much overtime as they could. But they were able to retire early. And so when they left, all the people who knew how to operate the subway system went. It was one of those things you rely you relied on Mr. O'Malley to take care of things or don't worry about it. O'Malley will be there. Don't worry. O'Malley retired. And O'Malley never had a backup. They had no like institutional so took, knowledge. So they just had a couple of years to retrain people. What and that was that around the sixties as well? When was that? Yeah. Okay. So it was basically close to the when did we go bankrupt in the city? Was that uh, I guess the late sixties, I guess, early seventies or whatever. That's the whole thing fell apart. We mm-hmm. suffered through John Lindsay and the whole bit. And, uh, right. And uh, then, as this was happening, new things happened, and uh, just everything. Um, Ma Bell was torn apart. You could not have Ma Bell on. Ma Bell? Ma, well, it used to be uh, AT&T controlled all the phones. So they said, everybody, you know, each state states their own. So we went from not knowing we're thinking that the telephone man who came in to put your phone in was brilliant. He knew how to do this. Till now we could go and buy our own phone at Radio Shack, and all you had to do was put the red wire into the yellow wire. That was it. <laughs> we, we thought it was some intellectual genius, but all it was was putting the wires through. You know? Right, <laughs> so the simple, telephone right? man with right. his right. special right. Right. <laughs> So uh, that was it. And so basically, I don't think we paid much attention to the economy there, what was happening and all that. The debt wasn't that bad. A big thing was the Russians were going to invade us and all that. So those Russian commies, you know, we worried about that more than anything else. And it was still at the point where if anything would happen in the Catholic school, the nuns would say, if there's bombing, go under the desks. But what we didn't know... So did you practice if duck you had, and cover? Or? Yeah, but well, the thing is, the, the atomic bomb, there's nothing left of us. <laughs> you know? But did... We know that now, but did they? Did you have a sense that that was that that was? True? Yeah, basically because everybody was used to uh, World War Two. Okay. Like, yes. Which happened, you know, like. You it did, already happened, so you were more more aware. Right. Of the, the and it was sort of interesting too. One thing I did learn from the uh, the book was that uh, I was able to take a lot of women, who uh, th- they were the ones who were here while their husbands were overseas, so they were mostly in the late seventies and all that. And I said, what were you people doing in the war effort here? Oh, would we, we'd have, uh, uh, have dinners for, the, for the, the troops in the park. What troops in the park? So I found out Third Street around there was off-limits. It was an anti-aircraft base. Oh. I remember my sisters told me we can't go into the park anymore because it was an area where it was... When no, you were how old? Uh, I was about four and five when I hear this, and then I still did not I didn't even think of it to let these older women. What I'm just, oh yeah, we, we had them here for, for dinner because they, they were in the park, stationed in the park, stationed in the park. They were also stationed in the Greenwood Cemetery, which is the highest highest area of uh, Brooklyn. So do you, do you think your sisters knew and understood what was? I don't going think on they or? understood. Basically, you, you weren't told a lot of stuff. Yeah. In fact, I just got. I, uh, I told you I, I run the uh, veterans area of the, of the uh, armory, and I just got a list of pictures from World War II 
of scenes that weren't allowed to be shown to civilians. And they were from the Japanese viewpoints, like uh, taking prisoners along the road and shooting them and things like that. Of what? Well, what was called, after Batam fell, it was called the Batam Death Watch. The Japanese took all the Americans and marched them to concentration camps. And a lot of them didn't make it, and they took pictures of it. So just these are pictures you didn't want, you know, these people had just recovered from Pearl Harbor. And it was four months later, and you don't want them to see this and all that. So it's sort of interesting. Yeah. Mm. Um. You, can, you can throw that out. It's like, I'm rambling now. Hmm? You can throw that out. I'm rambling now. No, <laughs> I want to hear about it. Wait, so were there other, like, sort of secret troop, like, stations, like, around, when, like, like the park? Where you, you know, where you well, I'm hearing here and there that, uh, yes, there were, because basically the submarines would be, German submarines would be around Rockaway. And in fact, they would be listening to big band music on their radio, into New York radio, uh, when they weren't shooting at ships and all that. So basically it was, uh, uh, there were a threat there, because uh, until radar was perfected and all that, you didn't know where they were. So they, they all the, everything would come out of Canada basically, Len Lease and all that. And they would just wait around and start shooting. But they were that yeah. close? Yeah. Wow. Um, and you said you served? I, I was, uh, yeah, I was in the army in, in the 60s, late 60s. Okay. And so um, how did you, how long were you on, uh, on tour? And then? Well, we were all drafted for two years. Okay. And, two years. Uh, yeah, that's it, you know. I, they try to get you further on with it. No, no, no. And when you came back, did was anything different, or your view of Brooklyn different? Everything. And you know, How? Like, well, when we came back, uh, music had changed a lot, uh, and you wait for a, a period of time, and basically people change a lot. You know, all of a sudden people had gone further on to school. They didn't really, have, you didn't have much in common, and I think. After World War II, as I, I read in history, there were celebrations of troops coming back, you know. But uh, and the war was over, but nothing was over. We just came back and we go on with life. Right, no celebration. No celebration, all that. And uh, there was a lot of bitterness. Uniforms were thrown away and all that, you know. I'm meeting people now. And, and nobody joined veterans groups anymore. Uh, like every time I see a veterans group, they're usually people who. Oh, Korean War, forget about it all. Nobody joined from the Korean War. They, they, their bitterness was really bad. Yeah. Uh, were you in Vietnam? No, no. Well, luckily I wasn't. Where were yeah. you? Uh, well, I got mostly down south. Okay. Um. And so, did you did you feel that same sense of bitterness, or mm -hmm. just the people around you? Well, remember you were, you were gone for a period of time, so you got back. Things had changed, and guys who had gotten out of the draft got good jobs. Right. And you can, even though you promised your job back, it's not the same job. Things have changed, you know, and you were left there. And at the time, there was a certain person who was now Secretary of State, who was calling everybody who's serving murders and killers. So, uh, were you able to get your job back? Yeah, the other thing is, not the same job, but it worked out fine because I got into trading. Okay. So it was more of a step up. 
And it was one of those accidental things that got better. But the other stuff was not there. This thing had changed. Again, the whole area got more technology than when I was leaving. Everything was done by hand and things like that. So things changed quite a bit, which is normal. And even now, it's quicker and quicker. Mm-hmm. I know people in Silicon Valley keep on losing their jobs because everything gets quicker and quicker. And so when you came back, did you come back and live with your family? Or did yeah. You... And, and so you still live in Park Slope now. Right. Have you moved around the neighborhood, sort of, in terms of where you've lived? No, basically staying in the same place. Uh, everybody used to laugh at me for staying in Brooklyn because it was, it was so beaten up and really run down. Uh, every once in a while, somebody would start building something up, and they'd go to work and get home and find out pipes and everything, lumber robbed, stolen. It was just a, that's a rough neighborhood. Uh, banks couldn't get mortgages. And uh, basically, uh, even though the transportation was still there, uh, it wasn't, for growing up kids and all that, it wasn't, it wasn't an area that people wanted to be with. The park was still beautiful, but the park was dangerous. Uh, you wouldn't go below 7th Avenue. Uh, it was just, just rough. Narcotics were being sold all over the place. And uh, basically, prostitution and everything was happening and all that. In so, the park? In the, no, just in the area, like here. And this, this police protection was terrible. And uh, not until probably the late 70s, early 80s, I did a New York Times, they'd written up the area again. And it got, sort of got rediscovered. And people started to come here. So why did you stay if things were so rough? Well, I was fine. All I do was go to the subway in the morning and I was at work. You know? <laughs> I'd take a cab home. I was, you know, so, so you didn't spend a lot of time actually in... In Barcelona, except for no, not really. Being yeah. At home. yeah. Um, but what what made you stay? Well, why not? It's like basically it was close to work. It takes me fifteen minutes to get to work. Uh, and again, I wouldn't be spending that much time in Park Slope. Uh, my life was basically uptown, so I, there was no reason. No reason to go anywhere. Else. Everybody else would we'll go out to the country. I don't want to go out to the country. You know, I want to see a play on one subway ride at the other way. Or I go from work, you know. There, there are too many things to be done within the city of New York. Uh, and I'm this close, but not in the city, which is fine. So you wouldn't leave Brooklyn? I thought of it a few times visiting uh, California and all that thing, going out there. But the smell of the city is great. Coming back. The smell of food, various foods. Uh, it's, it's the largest city in the world, Brooklyn, if it was a city. And uh, you come back, different areas. I like Polish food here, I like Mexican food here. And it's just great. So I can, you know, and it looked great. California looked great. And, but, you know, there's no sidewalks here. I mean, like, you know, it was sort of different when, when you come out. It's like for us, I, anything above the Bronx is upstate New York. No, no, that's it. No. Yeah. Once you leave the Bronx, you, you're in, in hinterland, you know. So you wouldn't leave Brooklyn then? I just never really thought it. I think if I had gotten married and I, the same thing, yeah. Well, I mean, I have one child. There's two childs. I'm not going to get. To, I'm not going to be out there, and you end up ending out in the suburbs, and you get the big car, and all that. and you love it. But I wasn't there at the time, so. 
Is there anything else you want to share with me? Memories of living here? Or I, I think you've got a lot out of it. I, I think so. I don't know. I think so too. Thanks very much for talking to me. Okay, fine.